0: A wet winter isn't all bad news. Turns out it's doing wonders for the California snowpack. Heavy rain and snow in California, helping to lift a five-year drought in the state. As of today, the snowpack is at 185% of average. Once the snow melts, that will be an important water source. Bottom line for everybody,
1: it's so much better out here. (laughs) It's really looking good. Welcome to Got Science, the podcast from the Union of Concerned Scientists. I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald, and today we're talking about melting.
2: Ah, I'm melting! Melting!
1: Snow melt, that is. Our guest is climate scientist, Dr. Juliette Christian-Smith, and she's going to talk about a water system that is out of whack. And we'll all get motivated to go to the People's Climate March, As the old adage goes, timing is everything, and nowhere is that more true than in California. The state relies on heavy snowfall in the mountains in winter and a slow, sustained snowmelt in the spring and summer to give the state the water it needs, when it needs it most. After five years of drought, Californians are breathing a sigh of relief with abundant snow now blanketing the Sierra Nevada, but that snow may not stay put for long. Climate change is causing snow to melt more quickly leading to the flooding in Oroville and San Jose that we've seen in recent months and potentially a water shortage this summer and fall throughout the state. Dr. Juliette Christian Smith is one of the state's foremost scientists studying and finding solutions to California's water problem. She's a senior climate scientist for UCS based in Oakland She's the lead author of the book, A 21st Century U.S. Water Policy, published by Oxford Press, and an editor of the journal Sustainability Science. Our correspondent, Brian Wadsworth, talked with Juliette about the water challenges facing California, the influence of climate change, and the implications for the state's infrastructure and citizens. Take it away, Brian.
2: Hello, this is Brian Wadsworth for Got Science. I'm here with Dr. Juliet Christian Smith from the Union of Concerned Scientists Climate and Energy Program. Juliet, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So, you've worked on water issues for a long time. How did that interest get started?
0: It actually started when I was a kid and my family would take us all out to an island off the coast of Maine in the summer. And the island didn't have a water system. It just had a cistern um, over the main hotel. And some years that meant that we had uh, enough water to take a couple of showers during the week. And some years it meant no shower, just swim in the ocean and and enjoy yourself um, and enjoy everyone being dirty all week. Uh, But it was the first time being an East Coaster that I realized basically where water comes from and that it isn't a limitless supply. Um, And that when you don't have much of it, it becomes so much more valuable. So the water that we did have for drinking was shipped in from a boat from the mainland and you were given one pitcher of cold water and one pitcher of warm water in the morning. And um, you can bet that people were very careful about how they used that drinking water. Um, And it got me to thinking about a lot of questions about who has access to water and how we allocate our freshwater resources. And in college, I did a lot of studying of actually marine ecology issues when I was in the East Coast. And when I moved to the West Coast, I was struck by how many of the freshwater shortages that they have here on the West Coast and in the Southwest really reminded me of that, those childhood kind of epiphanies. And I was very drawn to the questions around how do you manage a very basic good that people need every single day of their lives and without which they can't survive. And so I pursued doctoral research here at the University of California, Berkeley in hydrology and political science, uh, an interdisciplinary program that allowed me to really look into not only the biology and ecology of water, but also the social systems and policies that regulate its management.
2: So let's talk about California, where you have been for a while now. Um, So we had years of extreme drought, and now a crazy wet and snowy winter. What's going on exactly?
0: Well, that's what a lot of people are asking. And it's not one particular thing, but it's a variety of issues. But it's definitely reflective of what climate scientists have been projecting for California since the 1980s. So in 1988, the cover story on Discover Magazine, Scientific Magazine, was about the greenhouse effect. And inside that magazine was an image of the state of California. And it showed that by 2050, climate scientists were projecting that there would be uh, wetter, wet periods, uh, more rain rather than snow that led to earlier snowmelt and more intense precipitation and then drier summers because that snow melt that actually serves as a water storage system for us, that the snowpack, it's melting much sooner and therefore that water isn't available in our reservoirs in the summer when we have the highest water demands. So that's basically what we're seeing happening and what has occurred over the last five years. We went from historic lows, very, very little snowpack to right now having about 173% of average snowpacks, way over average, but we are getting warmer storms and warmer weather. And right now, the city of L.A., the, the mayor of the city of L.A. just asked for emergency declaration for the L.A. Aqueduct, which is one of our main canal systems, because of the melting, the snow is melting so fast that they are concerned about the health and safety of people who live around the California Aqueduct and the maintenance of the aqueduct itself.
2: But is it true that California gets most of its usable water from the snow as opposed to aqueducts or rivers?
0: So the water in the aqueducts and rivers often originates in snow. The rule of thumb is a third of the water in our surface water systems is snowmelt driven. The other waters are from precipitation and base flow from groundwater, but Snowpack is by far our largest reservoir system above ground. That gets into another piece of the puzzle, which is that we actually have another storage system underground that hasn't been regulated and hasn't been monitored well. But we know that during this last drought, about half of the water used in California came from groundwater and that we're seeing massive declines in our groundwater levels throughout the Central Valley, which is our agricultural heartland in California.
2: So does all this record snow mean the drought is over?
0: Well, it means the drought is over if you're only looking at the top half of the system, which wouldn't really make sense because it's a connected system, surface water and groundwater. So some people have said the snow drought is over. We do have snow. There's still a question whether that snow will be available in the summer when we actually need water. But if you look below the ground, we certainly are not out of the drought. And the U.S. Geological Survey estimates that it would take 50 years of precipitation to refill the groundwater aquifers that are so low that we're seeing the land actually collapse and sink in areas due to the loss of pressure underground.
2: Is it true that the drought has made the ground more impervious to water, trying to filter down to the aquifers?
0: yeah i think the soil moisture levels were so low that in some areas there was probably a hardening of some of the pervious areas and it takes a while for groundwater reserves to rebound and that's one of the problems with intense precipitation won't refill groundwater any more quickly than average precipitation because it's really driven by the infiltration rate of the soils. And that is a fairly constant number. You can improve infiltration rates through particular land management practices and our food and agriculture program has been working on that in terms of looking at composts, cover crops, soil amendments, and soil conservation practices that can really improve the infiltration of stormwater into our groundwater reserves and improve soil moisture, which really means that you actually get a double win because you've put more groundwater into the ground and hopefully brought up your groundwater levels, but you've also increased the soil moisture in your root zone and may not need to apply as much irrigation water on that land.
2: So at what point does the low level of water in the aquifers become a crisis for California?
0: I think that California has decided that groundwater is a crisis um, because two years ago, we had the first statewide requirements to sustainably manage groundwater. And the Union of Concerned Scientists was very involved in getting that legislation written and passed. And for the first time, we're now looking at putting together plans that will achieve sustainable groundwater management over the next 20 years. Um, we're, we've dug it a big hole, so it's gonna take a while to get out of it, but we do have state mandates now to do so. You know, In some ways we're catching up with the rest of the states. Uh, Texas and Kansas and Arizona and Colorado have all developed groundwater management systems given the importance of groundwater as really the buffer to climate change.
2: So there is uh, something California can learn from these other states?
0: I think so. California has definitely been learning from looking at all of the other states' groundwater management frameworks. And ours is sort of amalgamation of a lot of different ideas from different places, not just in the states, but also internationally from Australia.
2: What are certain specific things some of these other states or countries are doing well?
0: It all starts with actually measuring the resource. And so monitoring and measuring groundwater is a cornerstone to any successful law. On top of that, there is a sense that if you just manage to make inputs and outputs equal and stabilize groundwater levels, that you will have achieved sustainable groundwater management. And we've learned from Kansas's experience and Australia's experience that in many cases, that concept doesn't really work, and it can continue to degrade systems over time. And so in some cases, you actually need to restore water to these groundwater systems, and inputs really need to be more than outputs.
1: We'll be back in a moment with the second half of our interview. You're listening to Got Science, a podcast by the Union of Concerned Scientists. And we are concerned about climate change and the Trump administration's disregard of global warming and even basic science. So what can you do when it seems like leaders in Washington aren't listening? We can march. And that's exactly what we're planning on April 29th at the People's Climate March. You can find more information at ucsusa.org march. But stay with us, we'll have lots more info after the second half of our interview.
2: So what role is climate change playing in the situation with water in California right now?
0: We're lucky in that we have a lot of climate science already in California that's showing us that this is very much in line with the projections. We're also lucky that Stanford researchers and Columbia University researchers have done attribution work, specifically looking at how much of the recent drought can be attributed directly to climate change. And what this work is showing is that California has the most variable precipitation in the United States. That's not new. But the heat that's been associated with the recent droughts and actually within the last 20 years has exacerbated all of our dry conditions. And the Columbia University researchers found that it's actually made it about 20% worse. Noah Diffenbaugh from Stanford University has also found that the likelihood that we not only have dry years but dry and hot years has doubled over the last two decades. So what we're seeing is the normal variations in precipitation are being supercharged and we're getting much hotter dry conditions, that means we have more evaporation from our reservoirs, from our land surfaces. That means our water demands increase and our gap between water supply and water demand is growing. And I like to think about drought not just as the amount of water that we get, which is a pretty narrow way of defining it, but whether our water supplies are meeting our water demands. And if you look at it that way, then we have been in a drought situation in much of the West for many, many, many years.
2: And how does that affect how we plan?
0: Surprisingly, it doesn't affect how we plan very much. Uh, When I first got to the Union of Concerned Scientists, one of the blog series I did was on water planning disconnects. And it was just highlighting a series of very odd planning decisions um, that... You just wouldn't think would happen in a state that has the kind of cutting edge research and climate science that we have in California. For instance, we just rebuilt our Bay Bridge that connects San Francisco to the Oakland area at an elevation that's expected to be inundated by sea level rise within the next 50 years. We have a variety of infrastructure planning decisions that just aren't taking into account the climate science that already is available. And that's why last year we sponsored a bill called the Climate Safe Infrastructure Working Group. And right now we're putting together for the first time climate scientists and state engineers to talk about how their designs and uh, projects from highways to bridges to reservoirs and dams need to change in order to accommodate more extreme conditions and the information that climate scientists have about how the future will be different from the past.
2: And we definitely saw the situation at the Oroville Dam recently how important infrastructure is.
0: I think that Oroville Dam and the 21-mile dam in Nevada, uh, which actually did collapse. The Oroville Dam did not collapse. It did require evacuation of 200,000 people. I think they both were wake-up calls to the whole country. We have over 2,000 high-hazard dams In the United States, that are in need of repair. Um, The American Society of Civil Engineers has ranked our dams and levees, our major water supply infrastructure, a D. We have a lot of people and places at risk to more extreme weather, and our infrastructure was built for the past. We are in the process of understanding that we really need to change the way that we plan, manage, and fund infrastructure moving forward.
2: Yeah, I think you've made the point that any infrastructure money that the states get needs to take climate into account.
0: Yes. And we've been really happy that in California, the state water board just about two weeks ago adopted a climate change resolution that says it will use climate science and data in all of its planning and management decisions in order to better prepare for extreme events.
2: And is there a role that the public can play in influencing either infrastructure plans or the groundwater plans you've mentioned?
0: Well, I think there is. Um, Infrastructure requires a lot of funding, and it requires maintenance and upkeep. And it needs people to prioritize those things and talk about those things to their representatives. Otherwise, it kind of falls off the table. It isn't necessarily a bright and shiny new object, it's something that is providing basic services but can really easily be ignored in favor of more timely and exciting things. When we talk about groundwater in California, there's a huge opportunity for public participation because the way the law was written. It actually requires for the first time for groundwater management agencies to encourage the active involvement of diverse stakeholders. They have to go and speak with land management agencies, which seems obvious, but they've never really done that before. And they have to keep a list of interested persons that they will update on all of their meetings and decisions. So anyone can apply to their um, Senate email, or call their Groundwater Sustainability Agency and tell them they want to be on that list, and they will be notified of all of the public engagement opportunities.
2: I would think that when an issue like water affects people's daily lives, they have a good incentive to, uh, to speak out.
0: Yeah, I agree. However, the history of water management in the West has been fairly exclusive. There's been a dominance by large water users, in terms of the decision making around water resources. And so to me, that's actually one of the most exciting things about the new law in California and efforts throughout the United States to kind of democratize water management. It's around allowing people who use water to have a seat at the table in making water decisions and affected communities. So you might know that we have over a million residents in California that currently don't have access to clean drinking water. And that's really shocking to many people, but it's been that way for a while. Those folks who haven't had access to just this basic human right, they are now going to be part of these conversations. And it's very important that their interests have a role to play and, have, and, and that they have a voice in these management decisions moving forward.
2: And I'm glad they have an advocate like you standing behind them. Uh, On that note, I will say thank you, Juliet Christian Smith, for joining us.
0: Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it.
2: For Got Science, this is Brian Wadsworth saying thank you and join us again.
1: And now I'd like to turn the mic over to my colleague, Maria Vidart, to tell us more about the People's Climate March.
3: April 29th just happens to be the 100th day of the Trump administration. And so we're organizing thousands of people from across the United States to come march in the streets of Washington, D.C. We'll be there to show our leadership that we care about climate change. We care about the ways climate change contributes to and exacerbates racial discrimination, income inequality, and many other social injustices. We care about protecting our environment, our water, our air and land, and not about selling them off to the highest bidder. We care about renewable energy and the jobs it provides. We care about immigrants, communities of color, indigenous rights, tribal rights, and workers' rights. People from frontline communities who are already living with the consequences of environmental injustice and climate change will be there. People from indigenous communities will be there. All kinds of people who care about naming, believing in, and working to solve climate change will be there and you should be there, too. Join us for climate jobs and justice. Para encontrar más información en español sobre la Marcha del Pueblo por el Clima, puedes ir a ucsusa.org slash marcha del clima. Thanks,
1: Maria. That was Maria Vidart talking about the People's Climate March taking place in Washington, D.C. on Saturday, April 29th. I'll be there and many of my UCS colleagues. Please join us. And if you can't make it to DC, there are sister marches happening all over the country. Find all the details at ucsusa.org/slash/march. Well, that's it for this episode of Got Science. I'd like to thank Dr. Juliet Christian Smith. Our correspondents were Brian Wadsworth and Maria V. Dart. Music and editing by Brian Middleton. Special thanks to the Wicked Witch of the West. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. See you next time.